0: You're listening to The Drums TV Talks. I'm Hannah Bowler.
1: And I'm John McCarthy. In this series, we're going to explore all the new ways brands can advertise on TV, from the classic ad break to the weirdest branded partnerships you could possibly imagine.
0: We'll be speaking to the top TV exec, media owners and ad tech firms helping to bring about the future of TV.
1: Thanks for listening. Bonjour, Hannah.
0: Bonjour. Ça va?
1: Ça va. Ça va mal. Ça va mal, indeed. Ça va mal.
0: We're, we're not French. We, we just needed a new way to start a podcast. Yeah, And we'll be going through the European languages as and when the series drops.
1: I will be able to tell people I'm sad in every language. But Hannah, I'm sorry to have misled you in the audience. I'm not actually sad. I'm really excited to be back podcasting about TV. What are we doing today? What is on the agenda? Let's do it.
0: This week's agenda, we are going to be talking about Roku. Um, So me and John will just digest a little bit of what's been going on at the company for the last few months. Uh, It's kind of been having a few different struggles throughout the quarter. It's kind of gained some more subscribers, but has kind of been suffering some of the similar problems of everyone else, I guess, right now, um, with a little bit of an advertising slump. But we away from that, we've been actually talking to Laura Chivy, who is based in the UK, and she's kind of responsible for kind of growing Roku's presence in the international market, so everywhere out of America, essentially. So I sat down and kind of chatted with Laura around kind of measurement and, and kind of giving a bit of background to the kind of digital TV ecosystem and where Roku fits in that. I mean, she I met her once before, and she actually doodled. The kind of entire TV digital ecosystem on a napkin for me, um, and I tried to make her retell that visually through words on a podcast. So we'll we'll see how that goes. But I think That'll she nailed it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, John, what's kind of been what else been happening at Roku lately?
1: Yeah, yeah. So at the start of the year, we were told there was a CTV boom coming. Uh, CTV spend was to be through the roof and double digits. Um, I don't have the research to hand, so you're just going to have to believe me. But that was generally the consensus. So you would think that Roku was well-placed to benefit from this rise in investment. But, um, you know, in recent months, we've seen that they are sort of struggling and they're telling us about, you know, difficulties in the market. And we're struggling to power that up with what we're seeing, um, especially with some of the broadcasters we've been speaking to in the UK particular who you know, expecting strong quarters to come. So, um, yeah, there's a, maybe we could call it a TV issue at Roku and beyond, of course. Um, and the CTV revolution has maybe swung down a bit more than we would expect. That says they're very well placed to benefit from it. And it's also worth remembering that they have all of Quibi's content.
0: papa of Joe. I
1: mean, we should definitely make a point of maybe sitting down and reviewing it all. Um, maybe that could be an episode.
0: Or we could spin out this onto like a YouTube series. Like, um, what's the show where, like a watch party?
1: The drum reacts to Quibi on Roku two years later. I mean, does it have the pool for advertisers? Um, Roku probably quite sadly got it at a good price. And that actually brings me around. Do you remember when Quibi had $1 billion of ad spend committed to it?
0: I remember the days.
1: Well, similarly... That's what Roku acquired during its uh, upfronts recently, which is worth noting that that's a ninth of what Disney got, $9 billion—with of its whole massive Disney Plus beast coming together, Hulu, all of that. But, um, yeah, $1 billion in upfronts. Um,
0: it's a decent take-home.
1: Yeah, yeah. You can always want more, but um, that will secure them for a few years to come. However, you were saying they are cutting back content spend a bit. I think everyone is, though.
0: Yeah, I think everyone will be kind of tightening down the hatches on some of that. It's worth noting, though, because I think they were kind of really starting to put their originals in quite a core part of their strategy. So to kind of start coming back a little bit from it, I guess, is is worth noting. But, yeah, I mean, it's probably following a kind of consistent trend. Um and they have a yeah, their originals is is kind of interesting one actually because it's quite done in an advertiser led way. So as we our last podcast was kind of about branded content, a lot of Roker originals are kind of in that vein. They're uh, they're kind of strategy around them. There's a lot more towards sponsorship opportunities and brand kind of being involved from the beginning of the con of the content, which is quite different to I think what a lot of other original content producers are doing in the market.
1: Yeah, it was quite a bold move for them, moving from platform to content creator. And maybe the best example we have of that is YouTube. Every time it launches originals and then sort of steps away from them a bit. Um, Maybe the most famous example of that was the fact they funded the first season of Cobra Kai, which everyone loves because it's brilliant. That's now at home on Netflix, having a really good time. Um, But... um, what is Roku's Cobra Kai, I guess? That's the, the big question. Well, maybe you don't want to emulate Cobra Kai's first season, but uh, yeah, to play in the originals game, you really got to have a hit.
0: Yeah, definitely. Oh, I forgot about YouTube's alliances with original content. They went out strong. They, they have no more, more shows left, really.
1: We're maybe exposing their ignorance because they probably have another original content plan right now called YouTube Premium Plus. So I don't know there'll be something
0: well that was nice to just kind of debrief the last few kind of months at roku and especially with their little win at the upfronts so that one billion so that's nice um so i'll hand over to laura Chivy, who will kind of help digest some more of this
1: yes
2: so my name is laura chivey and i've been in the business for about 20 years I'm probably known as the girl who gets the answers or some people call me data girl. (laughs) My background is I've been doing digital media measurement and research and advertising effectiveness for for well over 15 years. I'm classically trained at the BBC for my skill sets, which means I I learned how to do effective research properly, primary research, but I was always on the digital side. And I've been doing digital media measurement for well over 15 years across the BBC. I worked for Orange France Telecom, where I helped pioneer mobile media measurement after, you know, really crafting online measurement. And then I moved on to Yahoo. And then from Yahoo, I moved to the Middle East for seven years where I actually helped build the infrastructure of media measurement, opening up an IAB. In fact, they just published their, their um, most recent IAB ad spend study, 4.58 billion in the region, which I worked on to, to kind of establish. And now I'm at Roku and at Roku, I'm heading up all advertising uh, marketing and insights for markets outside of the USA or the, the international footprint it's a really exciting role to be in you really are the measurement gal aren't you <laughs> yeah I, love was like, the data. I, was like, I was a bit of a geek I was like the girl who did the maths homework and everyone's like can I copy your
0: answer <laughs> So, so Roku, maybe give us a bit of an overview of, of your, you know, your day to day and and what you're kind of getting stuck into at the, at the company at the moment.
2: Yeah, to be honest, you know, Roku is a relatively new company outside of the USA, and what that means is for brands and advertisers, they really are, they have low awareness that we're actually an opportunity that they can consider for media and advertising. And so, the really the first things I'm focusing on in the UK, in in the markets like the Americas, Latin America, Canada, is is working with. Measurement vendors, particularly the the pre planning strategic media planning tools, to to make sure that Roku is actually covered, so that brands know. How many people are using Roku from from a media and advertising point of view? They can profile the audience and and identify, is this their right target audience when it comes to what they're trying to achieve on on their um, strategic media planning? And then obviously moving them along into being able to come to us and say, hey, you've got our audience and we think we should be working together and finding the right ways to craft an amazing way that they can reach their clients. And with Roku, what's, what's great is you have all the benefits of TV the beauty the branding the big storytelling and and we've got lots of opportunities beyond like even the 30 second spot we do themes particularly for media and entertainment brands you can have very immersive experiences on Roku but also if you're trying to do performance-based advertising we have the engine and the infrastructure to be able to help those brands as well and and so really we're we're an end-to-end solution I think we're one of few brands in the world that can do that where if you're a brand that's you know, focus purely on performance and you're wanting to come in, you've got highly niche targeted segments on, on, not, not one-to-one because that's a little bit too deep, but, you know, trying to reach one to few or one to niche segments up to one to many, and then moving further along, certainly now in the USA, we're the number one streaming brand. Our footprint is huge. We have over 61 million active accounts worldwide. We can really also help with one to mass reach for those brands that, that have, you know, a huge footprint and they need to find these audiences.
0: Yeah, this is, uh, so, so just some context, me and Laura met a few weeks back in London and Laura gave me this insanely detailed, insanely helpful diagram, basically like outlining the taking the one to few to one to many and the journey that some of the newer brands are kind of on who are kind of so used to playing in the digital space and now they're trying to make their way on TV and interlinear as well. So it's kind of a learning from both sides. I don't know, Flora, you kind of wanted to throw a little bit through the diagram and explain that journey that a lot of the newer brands, like the D2Cs and the venture capital rich brands are kind of that journey they're on.
2: Yeah, Hannah, that is a really great question, and I think you know I'm I'm actually also I'm sim qualified, so I have my Chartered um, Institute of Marketing qualification. So I was classically trained as a marketer, and what's really great right now is there will always be new brands, <clears throat> and, and new brands they may start out, for example, with growth hacking. Maybe they don't have budget, so they're using social media environments or other environments where they can do a lot of their own free advertising, in the sense that they build up community and then what happens is they master that they then start spending money performance money in in most cases in different digital environments including search and then they build the craft it's a test and learn test and learn and what what a lot of people how to call this is you can say you're almost like demand harvesting where are the audiences who want your products and services you're connecting with them and then you're like great we've got cash flow you know, we're building our business. And then as that sophistication grows and what's great about direct consumer brands is they're digital native brands, they're digital first. They don't have a legacy of digital transformation and trying to like rip out their backend systems to be digital brands, which means, they have amazing data often they have as well their own first party data so they can say who is their audience how are they reaching what's their spend and as they kind of come up they they realize they will hit at some point a plateau so they may have an always on search strategy and it could be branded or unbranded keywords they've they've maxed out what they can do with performance and digital And then they realize in order to grow, they need to make the leap into other forms of media. And this is where Roku and connected TV is an excellent place to take the leap. And the reason is, is because they're familiar with all of that digital-based performance data and you can get that kind of data um, through Roku, through our OneView platform, and we can help you start that journey into television. And what else, there's a lot of great case studies already if, if, out in the market. Thinkbox publish a lot of great case studies. There's an excellent one from Vintage, for example, which is a used clothing brand. It's a direct consumer brand. And what they could do is they started experimenting in television and they could see the direct impact in the visits to their owned and operated, you know, whether it's app or website, and they could also measure the impact on search uplift. And with all of this data, they were then able to make the business decision to go much more upper funnel with bigger spend into television. So that's, what's great about these brands is they're finding really strong ways to, to, to justify their investment in coming into to television. And I would encourage any, any brand that's a direct-to-consumer brand who've maximized what they can achieve and they're ready for scale, they should come talk to us. Do you think those brands are looking for the
0: same metrics and the, the traditional kind of, you know, your like long-term brands like Tesco and Boots who have always yeah. advertised in this way? Are they looking for the same things from
2: from the TV ads? What do brands want? If we look to classic and prolific marketers, whether it's, you know, Peter Field, uh, Byron Sharp, Les Binet, they all know the number one most important metric is reach. And certainly the best case studies out on the market will say, for those brands who maximize performance, and, and let's be honest, in the retail set, maybe you know it's different for each category. A lot of brands may see only a two percent basket conversion, for example. And if you're in in doing all of your digital work, let's say I don't know, you reach ten thousand audience a month through all of your digital activation, and it's a 2% conversion, what the case studies that are on the market are coming out and saying is, well, if you scale into TV, maybe you're buying now reaching 100,000 people a month or a million people a month, that 2% all of a sudden moves from 1,000 to 10,000 to 100,000 audience. So also make sure, you know, any good marketer will know Make sure you've got your distribution on the back end. Come into TV, but it's it's not just getting brand awareness, which is absolutely important because TV is the shop front for di- direct consumer brands. They haven't got a shop front on a high street, so if you're not doing mass advertising in this kind of environment, how are you going to be found? And so it's also though making sure that you can handle the volume. We've we've got loads of great case studies worldwide from, from Roku, like brands like Headspace have worked with us, Quaker Oats, Columbia Clothing, Schneider Electrics. We're, we're actually seeing a, a range of brands as well as these direct-to-consumer brands. Lexus has worked with us. And when it comes to finance, I think that's also a really interesting category because the fintech category, category disruptors, this, these are the kinds of brands that now have over three years worth of data that they've been building. If even if they're a new backed company, they've got a lot of proof points to justify their move now up into uh, higher volume and higher scale activations.
0: Yeah, it's interesting what you were talking about on the, on the fintech side that because obviously that's really expanded. And like planners and the Clear ClearScore are like really plummeting money into, into campaigns like this. The only thing that, I mean, I'm just seeing as someone that has to read the news every morning, the amount of um, companies like this, like, I mean, planners had huge financial losses at the moment. Laying off staff, and and some of these companies that have kind of built up so quick are having a little bit of a tough time. Um, and I don't know if, if if you've got any oversight of if that's gonna are they going to start retreating? Well, I think I think
2: place? I think all brands, whether you're a finance brand or or a food brand or a delivery brand, there are always going to be macroeconomic cycles and ebbs and flows. And I think if that brand is a brand that's focused on a lots of purchasing. What we're also seeing is people are purchasing less, and so any good prudent brand needs to respond to their market conditions and make decisions based on it. Um, what we can say is that most of the traditional brands that have been wedded to TV branding, they have excellent case studies to show that whenever there are different ebbs and flows, whether they're the peaks and the troughs through the troughs, they normally will advertise their way through. And because what they know is that when they come out the other side and we're back onto the upside of consumer sentiment and positive um, in spending, um, what will happen is that they're in a much stronger position. And that's the benefit that TV can bring you because brands, when they are ready, you're top of mind and you will be the brand that's likely chosen on the shelves.
0: How do these two sides come together? So we've kind of pitched one against the other, which is maybe... Uh, unfair, but I kind of like it. So, if we're looking at like the the legacy brands that love TV and it's their mainstay, and these new players that are coming onto the scene, how are they interacting with each other, and how, how can they kind of learn from different approaches?
2: So, I think first of all, I don't call them legacy. I like to call them established brands because I, I always yeah, do the have legacy. Lot of, and then yeah, very I good. use I use the word established because they've earned their stripes. There's a reason why they're still in business and they're and they're doing well. And Every day, they have to face new challenger business models that want to disrupt their core competencies. I think what they can learn is that they're like, let's take, for example, FMCG. It's it's a high, you know, fast moving consumable goods or consumer product goods, CPG, depending on which side of the pond you're on. Their yield on how much money they make per sale is tiny, you know, one, two, three percent per sale. There they have to be laser focused on what yield looks like. They haven't got room to make mistakes. And so at the bottom end, there's a lot of test and learn that gets done with buying media because you're maybe you're spending ten dollars to reach a thousand people. Maybe you're spending, you know, six dollars, fifteen dollars. You can do test and learn. And and understand the micro decisioning happening at these very small investments. When you're a big brand with mass reach, think of like, you know, the sportswear brands, the fast food brands, and your brand already has like 90% awareness worldwide, you need different solutions to help you with your business. When you do a product launch in a big, big brand, so maybe you're an alcohol brand and you're doing a new flavor derivative, you might do one campaign launch worldwide to get your message out, and that is millions and millions of pounds. When it comes to measurement, you don't have the luxury of experimentation and test and learn at the $10 end. You need measurement solutions at the top end that can help you make decisions and de-risk your investment. And that's where measurement at the top end, like the Barb's of the world or the you know, Nielsen in the USA, their solutions are built on population statistics. You know, If you have the right size panel, The purpose of that is to de-risk investment decisions. It's to remove uncertainty on how you're going to spend your money so you can make those big bet decisions. It is not at the bottom end where we're guessing and testing and learning in controlled environments to some extent where you might change one variable and go, did this work? Well, Well, what about this? Well, what about this? Well, what about this? And the machines are doing these iterations, iteration, iteration. You get one chance. If you are a telco brand and you're going to launch a telephone and it's a new handset worldwide, you get one chance for your massive big bet spend. And that requires much more rigorous statistically rigorous measurement solutions which is the the established base of what television measurement is in a lot of countries and so where where we could probably say is the bottom end is doing really well and is sophisticated with that one to few the top end for massive Amounts of, you know, if you're trying to reach 50% of the population or more, you need the statistics where these two worlds are crashing together. This kind of digital excellence and television excellence is almost like the messy middle. And so the peop- the brands here or the categories here, so if like I always give the example of like air fresheners. It's a very niche category and I've done research on it. It's very hard sometimes. Or like dandruff control shampoo is a niche audience segment. And those kinds of brands and categories go, well, I've got, you know, maybe only 10% of the population needs my products and services. Where are the measurement solutions that help me? And in some ways, this is where, where the industry has to get to. We have to get to a third way where we can bring in the excellence of digital, but also not negate or, or forget about the established you know, importance of the statistics at the top end. How can we bring these two closer together to help those middle-of-the-range brands? That's where we really need to find a third way. And that's where much of the industry is going. And the great news is Roku. We are TV and we are digital. We are this hybrid third culture child, you could say. And I believe we're a kind of company that can bring the best of these worlds together and help brands through. So where, where are you on, on the
0: measurement debate in terms of, I mean, you've referenced Barb and Nielsen there on the, on the kind of traditional side. What do you think they need to do to kind of meet that messy middle that you were talking about? Or, or is it a way that an, another company, a Roku or... Uh, another kind of uh, measurement firm comes in and takes over? Or do you still kind of believe in them as the, as the gold standard?
2: Hannah, that's a really great question. I think it really depends on which market we're in. So every market is having its own evolution. So even how television measurement is done in France, it's slightly different. They love to focus on out of home for example, to make sure all screens are measured. Or if you're trying to do measurement in Italy, they care about 24 hour data cycles and overnights and it helps inform their planning every market is slightly different and so what I can say is our DNA is Roku we're partner friendly we're here to help enable the ecosystem so for example in the USA we're we have relationships with the, the major measurement providers we make sure that we're enabling them to have access to help understand performance of campaigns advertising effectiveness we partner with Nielsen like much of the industry to make sure that you can do your ads rating measurement, with it you know from the performance on Roku. And that's our our you know our philosophy. We need to enable it's it's actually what does the advertiser want? So if a Unilever or a PNG or any brand in any category comes to us saying this is how we measure our success and these are the tools and systems that we use. We need to work with them to enable them to understand their business success in the way that they know best suits their their industry. It's it's a lot of work. It means you have a lot of um, friendly partnerships right across the ecosystem. But that's the the approach we're taking. We think it's the right one.
0: Yeah, I was talking to John Wait from Havas, He's a planner, and he he was kind of saying this um this aspect of like I just want to be able to pick my own system. I don't even want. A unified system. Just let me go out and for this campaign, I want this measurement system. And for this campaign, I want this measurement system. And just like leave us, leave us to decide it for ourselves. I just thought it was a really interesting take.
2: Well, I think they have a craft, so they've been in the business a very long time, and and there it will be there'll be lots of reasons why they want that. But oftentimes, it's the client. The client will have set up their infrastructure to measure, and with that. They need enablement. So, so if they want to do data matching, if if they want to, could do an omni-channel um, campaign they the advertiser wants to know what is my cumulative reach and right now to be honest this has been a 20-year debate 40-year debate it's been a long-term debate it's something that we are systematically i think incrementally continuing to work on that's why you see for example if you haven't heard of it the wfa is which is the world federation of advertisers they have come together out of the usa to say we have a manifesto we want to be able to holistically see audiences to say were we able to to reach 100% of the audiences that we wanted to and right now that's very very difficult to do it's a combination of the measurement systems and place now are kind of like ring fenced. So online and TV don't speak to each other. Certainly Barb did dovetail They're They're bringing in the long tail of information with Project Origin um, in the UK. This is another solution that is being led by the advertisers. I believe they're they're to the point of tender and seeing what are the vendors that can help them with how they want measurement to look. I think it's a very exciting time to be in this space because it's the evolutionary phase. Um, and certainly I remember when we were building out mobile, we had this huge launch event. Um, I think it was like early days of IPA touch points. And it was one of the first times MOBA had come into the the ecosystem of media planning. And Rory Sutherland stood on stage and he's like, I love it when a new medium comes into town because we all get to be friends. We get to bring the best brains into the room to figure out how to solve these industry problems. And then the moment it becomes mass, it's like the gloves are off and now we're competitors. (laughs) This is a very UK way of doing business. And it's why I love being based here and, and working on measurement.
0: I love that. That last little anecdote um, is hilarious. It's so, so true. You can imagine him saying it
2: as well, <laughs> yeah. right? A big, jolly guy.
0: <laughs> I totally can. Oh, well, thank you so much. That was I think that was a lovely note to kind of end on and, and wrap up to see you're all collaborating at this stage and not, not the gloves are off.
2: <laughs> well, we have to. We have big problems to solve and there's a lot of fragmentation. Brands need these solutions, so we've got to work to try and solve them. Thanks Love so that. much for your
0: Thank time. Thank you Anna. so much. Uh, it was such a pleasure having you on the podcast. Nice to catch up again after, after our lovely first meeting.
2: <laughs> Indeed. Oh.
1: Well, you've made it to the end of the podcast. Well done. If you're interested in more Future of TV content, funny enough, we have a hub on the drum.com called The Future of TV. Please check in. Subscribe to our newsletter. Like, comment, subscribe. Do it all. Goodbye.